Welcome to episode 1841 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. Well, we have read the Yankees letter. (laughs) It's out there in the world for all to see, the bombshell Yankees letter. So what do you think? Well... I'm already tired of the discourse around this. That's <laughs> yeah. one of the things that I think. So I, I guess we'll go through the particulars in a moment mm-hmm. here. I mean, my my sort of broad takeaway is that this is largely consistent with what we expected based on mm-hmm. prior reporting around the Yankees and the Red Sox sort of tit-for-tat sign-stealing allegations and the run-up mm-hmm. to the league saying, no, really, you guys stop it now. <laughs> and so I think that this is pretty consistent with that. I do think that, like, you know, this behavior clearly inspired Major League Baseball to implement more stringent rules around sign stealing. They felt mm-hmm. a need having observed this behavior and whatever they saw in the Red Sox to say, hey, like, knock it off, though. Don't. That's not what we mean by what is acceptable sign stealing. So I find the idea that this is somehow like acceptable behavior because it was widespread or because it isn't as egregious as what the Astros ended up doing in their own science stealing scandal. Maybe the maybe the Yankees thought about it, but they're like banging trash cans. Tugosh, shall not do that. <laughs> Sully the pinstripes. But so I think that like it is probably important for us to acknowledge that this behavior raised alarm bells for people in the league office and said, oh, this could this could get out of hand. This is out of hand. And if you guys do this after this date, it will carry with it much more stringent punishment. I'm going to utilize one of my few uh, pop culture references, but there was like a, there's an episode of Law and Order from roughly a billion years ago, you know, when the, <laughs> the show and the universe were new. Mm-hmm. And the defendant in the case did some like, they did like a new crime, right? They did like, I, maybe it involved computers. I don't know. Like they, they did something that was either new or like unique horrible and their defense attorney was like now 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 jack mccoy not so fast that's not illegal and then they like turn to the judge and they're like careful your honor you're gonna get overturned on appeal and the judge is like this is the kind of case that inspires new law and Mm -hmm. i I think that like that's the the lens through which to view this behavior and the behavior of the red sox don't worry yankees fans we think many people were up to no good but like the the league clearly looked at this and was like we can't have this this is bad so Mm I don't know, like, I don't want to, I don't want to underreact to things like this. I don't want to overreact to things like this. I don't want to really have a lot to say about how people are talking about their over or underreaction. (laughs) (laughs) But like, this is, uh, this was bad and, and, and was made to be against the rules in a much more explicit way. And uh, uh, I hope that we continue to see, you know, like, that we see very proactive monitoring of the use of new technology and timely intervention. And I will not, I don't know that the intervention here wasn't timely, but you know, we want, when we have identified that there is a problem that sort of moves the competitive balance of the game and tilts and sort of knocks it off its axis, you want 
the league to intervene very swiftly and to say, here is the, here's the line. And once you cross it, there will be real consequences. And when you're flirting with it, we might tell you to knock off your flirtation, but I don't know. Like we, we have to continue to monitor this stuff. It's not as if we're going to wake up tomorrow and the game is going to be suddenly devoid of incentives to push the boundaries of the rules. And sometimes when we are presented with, with new technology or use of technology that is new, like it requires making new law. So here Mm -hmm. we go. Yeah, I'm sure some Yankees fans will interpret this as our good name is cleared and we're innocent. That's certainly (laughs) how the statement from the Yankees reads. Yes, right. And some (laughs) Astros fans, I'm sure, will say, see, everyone was doing it and we are no worse than anyone else. And I don't know that either of those interpretations is entirely correct. I think this is not that big a deal. There's nothing that surprising in it because Mm -hmm. just about everything in here had been previously reported by The Athletic or SNY or some other source and I think the only thing really we didn't know was that the Yankees were fined $100,000 to charity for this behavior here. But really, yeah, they were doing what we knew that the Red Sox were doing later, even. The fact that they were decoding signs in real time during games using the video room and then relaying those decoded signs to hitters or to players who were on second base, right, so that they would have the cracked code and they could then relay those interpreted signs to the batter so this required someone being on second base basically so it's much more limited than the Astros scheme right but still not what you're supposed to do they were using technology during games to decode signs and they were passing those decoded signs to players and I guess technically The Yankee statement stresses the fact that they were fined for, like, illegal use of dugout phone equipment, not sign-stealing itself, which is like, okay. What did you use the phone for, though? (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) You weren't weren't calling in a pizza. Yeah, they were not fined for, like, calling down to get someone warming up or whatever. Like, they were fined for passing sign-stealing information using those phones. Yeah, no no one in the dugout was like, I was supposed to call my mom yesterday and I forgot. Oh, she's going to be so mad. You know, that's not what they were up to. Yeah, so that's uh, very much a technicality. We're splitting hairs (laughs) there. I think everyone knows what was happening here. But that's kind of emblematic of the messiness of the whole situation because technically, at least as Rob Manfred and MLB interpreted things, what was illegal was passing this information on via electronic methods, not the actual decoding of it, even though there was already a rule on the books back then that said no equipment may be used for the purpose of stealing signs or conveying information designed to give a club an advantage. And on the one hand, I sort of understand that because, well, if you're just doing your decoding, doing your code breaking in the replay room, and you never share that information with anyone, well, no harm done, I guess. Or if you're using that footage to crack the code after the game and prepare you for the next game, also not against the rules. So it is kind of the real-time communication of that intel that crosses the line, but you're really leaving the door open for further abuses there if you say that actually using this equipment to decode the signs, that's not the problem. It's only the problem if you use some electronic means to communicate what you found. Plus, the whole situation was sort of obscured and became as much of a subject of intrigue as it did, because at the time, Rob 
Manfred didn't explain what was happening here, what the Yankees were doing. It was just something or other involving dugout phones. Who knew what? Anyway, now we know, courtesy of this unsealed letter from Manfred to Brian Cashman, this was uh, the Yankees were documented to have been doing this in 2015 and 2016, right? And the difference with the other teams is that we know that the Red Sox continued to do this in 2018. We know that the Astros were doing it in 2018 too. And of course, they had their much more involved scheme with the camera and the trash cans and everything in 2017. So this is more limited and did not continue as far as this letter establishes beyond when Manfred laid down the law a little bit and said, hey, stop doing this or you're going to be punished more severely. So that's what separates the Yankees from the Red Sox, let's say. I do find it amusing that these teams were just constantly accusing each other yeah. of signs stealing. And they're like, yeah. I demand an investigation. <laughs> and then the, the other team is like, I demand a counter-investigation. <laughs> and so as uh, Andy Martino's report at yes. SNY says, in addition to the Yankee letter, there is a Red Sox letter and many more letters yes. as teams asked MLB to investigate one another regarding sign stealing. So that is amusing that the Yankees were like, hey, they're using Apple Watches over there. You should look into that. And then the Red Sox was, well, you should look into what the Yankees were doing. And so you just get these, uh, you know, warring investigations. But as far as we know, Yankees were not doing a banging scheme and were not using Apple Watches or whatever. So you can draw some distinctions here. And I guess one potential takeaway is that there were probably plenty of teams that were doing this much in that era just because no one had really explicitly told them to stop and maybe MLB had failed to anticipate the fact that when you have this uh, video replay equipment just down the hall from the dugout teams were going to find some nefarious use for that unless they were explicitly instructed not to and maybe even (laughs) if they weren't explicitly instructed not to so you know we know that the Yankees were doing this we know the Red Sox and Astros were doing this there have been various other accusations that have surfaced about other teams at other times and I'm sure it was somewhat pervasive which doesn't necessarily make it right or moral but makes it unsurprising and so clearly there had to be some kind of crackdown here because teams throughout the long history of baseball have always used whatever means were available to them to try to get an edge and I don't even know what edge this provided it is possible that there wasn't much of one if any but of course teams were going to take advantage of the resources that were at their disposal if they were not stopped so this kind of thing hopefully is not possible anymore i'm sure that there will always be some other edge that teams are finding ways to exploit but this specific method there have been crackdowns there have been observers there has been you know cut downs in the video equipment at times and so hopefully they have stopped this one way of cheating and ultimately inevitably there will be some other way that comes up and a whole new scandal for us to discuss won't have a name like the banging scheme though no and i do enjoy just the yankee letter like there was definitely a streisand effect happening here right because i mean the yankees fought this thing being unsealed for years i mean it was ordered by a judge to be unsealed years ago and they've been appealing and protesting and 
I guess I get why. I mean, obviously, like, there are going to be people who are not going to really read the letter or understand the details and are just going to interpret this as, oh, the Yankees were stealing too, basically. So, like, if they want to avoid just being associated with this in any way, I guess I get why it would be advantageous to them to keep this out of public view. But (laughs) I think it probably backfired in that there was just this whole mystique built up around the Yankees' letter and what are they trying to hide and what don't they want us to know? Like, I didn't expect there to be any super intriguing revelations in here. Just, you know, so much had been reported already. Right. But the only thing that made me think that maybe there was something to hide there was that they were fighting so hard so to get hard. this sealed. <laughs> and I know they said it's like, oh, the legal principle of the thing and all that. But, you know, that wasn't really why they were fighting this, I don't think. So, yeah. Probably. I don't know if they could do it all over again. I wonder whether they would just, you know, have it come out without all of the hubbub and just kind of die instead of persisting for years and building up anticipation that there would be some bombshell news in this letter. Yeah, I was sort of in the same spot that you were. On the one hand, I was like, we have we are lucky to have a a number of very good investigative reporters who have decided that baseball is interesting enough to them to have mm-hmm. be the subject of their investigation. So I was sort of of the mind that if there was some really dramatic revelation here that fundamentally altered our understanding of either the uh, duration of their sign-stealing activity or the scope of it, that we we probably would have heard about it before now because you know it seems like we hear about these things but there was a time when we didn't know about the banging scheme either so mm-hmm. i was like what is, what's in there what you yeah. get what you get mm-hmm. so yeah i don't know like i think that <laughs> we have had so many opportunities in the last couple of years to think about sort of where we want to draw the line in terms of you know what is pressing a competitive advantage versus pressing it too far to the point of of sort of undermining the competitive integrity of the game and i don't know that our understanding of that is is altered all that dramatically by what was reported today but i think it does underscore again as we are embarking on an era of say pitchcom where we have a new technology that we mm-hmm. understand and i think with good reason i don't think we need to be you know overly paranoid about it but that we understand to be very secure that you know there will forever be incentive within the game to kind of try to crack the code or press as far as you can before you get your wrist slaps. I mean, one of the things that we also saw in this piece by Andy was that subsequent to the start of the season, there has already been a memo issued to teams by the league's VP of on-field operations, Michael Hill, that they are not to use their replay room to zoom in on the new pitchcom devices, right? Uh So there is there is going to continue to need to be really strict sort of observation and scrutiny of new tech as it enters the field so that it is being used in the way that it is intended. And, you know, we don't necessarily have to look at the league and say that they have a great track record with this stuff. Like, it's not surprising to me that they didn't anticipate all the uses of replay. They didn't anticipate that we would try to find an out in between, you know, the base and a guy's shoe. So, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes it's hard to see this stuff coming and sometimes... There's sort of like an unexplained innocence to the way (laughs) the league imagines teams are going to implement and use new tech, but we just gotta gotta keep an eye out. You know, I I don't love the surveillance state, but I also think (laughs) that we don't want another banging scheme on our hands.
Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I doubt that is going to be the last word on the sign-stealing scandal. And uh, if Evan Drellick is still working on his Astros book, then maybe there will be more revelations to come in the future. But that lays to rest at least the long and tortured saga of the Yankees letter. So we can close the book on that chapter, at least, of the sign-stealing story. So Roki Sasaki... He uh, gave up a hit on his very first pitch of the game, and that ended his <sighs> 52 batter streak of perfection. This was on Sunday in Japan. So, two consecutive perfect starts nine innings and eight innings, plus an additional batter in the start before that. And there was no suspense on Sunday because he gave it up immediately and he got shelled by Roki Sasaki standards, which is that he went five innings, gave up six hits, three walks, two hit by pitches, two runs, four strikeouts, still won the game, but was far from perfect. However, you know who was close to perfect was Matt Shoemaker. Remember Matt Shoemaker, the darling of my minor league free yeah, agent draft? Yeah, I do indeed. <laughs> I was very upset to hear that he had signed with the Yomiuri Giants. I mean, good for Matt Shoemaker, not so good for my minor league free agent team. But he took a perfect game into the seventh inning in his most recent start and ended up pitching, I believe, a complete game shutout. And now, through three starts for Yomiuri... He has pitched 21 and two-thirds innings, and he has a 1.66 ERA. So I guess I called the Matt Shoemaker sense. I was just wrong about the league and the team and the continent and all that. Aww. Instead of being with the San Francisco Giants as he was in the minors last year, he is with the Omiuri Giants, and that seems to be working out well. But I am getting zero credit for that <laughs> for my minor league free agent team. So it's a small consolation that he is indeed pitching well, although it does make me think so far that some team might have been smart to bring him back because uh, I thought he really had broken out and gotten it back together late in his minor league season last year but because of the lockout presumably he just had to sign somewhere and I'm sure he got a good deal and maybe he'll come back in the future but thus far it's working out for Yomiuri just not working out for me maybe uh, future minor league free agent drafts will, will work out some kind of like uh, partial credit for <laughs> like yeah. playing time in NPP or something because uh, that's happened before that players that Someone has drafted, not necessarily me, has ended up signing in a foreign league, and thus we get no credit for them, which is unfortunate. Maybe, uh, you know, it's a major league. It's uh, quite yeah. a high-caliber league. They should yeah. get some kind of credit. So not suggesting we retroactively change the rules here, but perhaps uh, in future editions. I think that you get credit for it in the same way that, like, I get credit in in properly assessing that like Patrick Wisdom would be useful. I just right. got the year that he'd be useful <laughs> in wrong. And granted, yeah. even I, <laughs> blessed with the self-confidence that I am, would not have thought that he would have turned in some of the seasons that he has. So that's, you know, that's entirely Patrick's doing. But mm -hmm. I think you get you get credit for properly assessing the skill, even if it ended up being deployed in another very good league that just happened to not be MLB. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll take it. Is that generous okay. of me? I mean, I haven't looked. I think I am doing pretty badly in the minor league free agent draft so far. So I might be trying to, you know, work the refs a little bit here to, to get some, <laughs> you know, dispensation on the back end. Yes. Yeah. I have not updated the numbers or looked to see how either of us is doing. I don't know. I assume that Ben Clements will beat both of us, but oh, yeah. we shall see. Yeah. 
In other news, Michael Conforto also not going to be playing in MLB this season, although for yeah. different reasons. He ended up having surgery for that yeah. shoulder injury that he sustained at some point over the offseason. Initially, when Scott Boris's agent revealed that, it sounded as if he would be able to work his way back, but evidently he couldn't really throw, which is a problem for an outfielder. And so he had surgery and he's done for the year and maybe he'll be back to full strength next year. But Sucks for Michael Conforto, obviously, because uh, as we discussed, he did turn down a big extension offer yeah. from the Mets previously and also turned down the qualifying offer offer <laughs> from the yeah. Mets. So that's unfortunate. I mean, that happens at times. That's yeah. why sometimes certainty is important. I mean, yeah. we talk all the time about how often these long-term contracts can be team-friendly, but there are those cases of players who, you know, that team-friendliness, I mean, the teams can assume the risk that something might happen to a particular player because they have a whole lot of other players and a lot of money, but players, uh, it's just a sample of one. It's just those players. And so often they bet on themselves and it works out just fine for them, but every now and then you suffer an unfortunately timed injury. Injury and yeah. you end up maybe missing out on a ton of money, which isn't to say that he couldn't come back and get a bigger deal down the road. But right now, I don't know. Either right. he is uh, shaking his fist at the universe or kicking himself or just generally lamenting the way that things work sometimes. Or maybe he is very philosophical about the whole thing and it doesn't bother him all that much and he's not going to be out on the street or anything. But yeah, not fortuitous timing for Michael Conforto. Yeah, it's one of those things where we kind of thought he would that he might end up taking like a pillow contract next year and now he really will be. Yeah. So it's too bad. It's just, you feel bad for the guy. Mm -hmm. It's one of those things that with the benefit of hindsight, he would just be he'd just be a, a rehabbing Met. And, you know, mm -hmm. what's what's newsworthy about that, really? You know, <laughs> yeah, might right. not even talk about it. Yeah. Although the Mets are off to a great start so far this season, offensively and otherwise. But uh, in better, more encouraging news about an outfielder, I guess Belly's back. I don't know if Yelly's back yet, but Belly seems to be back, right? Cody Bellinger is hitting. He yeah. has a, a 149 WRC plus thus far through 16 games. He is hitting the ball hard. He is uh, in the 91st percentile when it comes to hard hit rate. He seems to be catching up to some pitches that he would not have caught up to last year. And, you know, there was a, a lot of concern about him coming off of the disastrous last season. He had so many injuries that it wasn't clear whether the injuries were responsible or not. And then he kind of retooled his swing again. And in spring training, he struck out a ton and there were more fears. But the Dodgers kind of bet on him when they traded A.J. Pollock and, yeah. and committed to Bellinger and Gavin Lux, who's also been great thus far. The Dodgers, I think, are tied for the Mets in runs scored so far this season among the league leaders in offense. And Bellinger's been a big part of that. So it's still a smallish sample. I don't want to declare him back to MVP form necessarily. He's still striking out a ton yeah. and probably will continue to do that. But he is hitting the ball harder and he's overall been very productive. So that is encouraging news. Yeah, I think that we have seen sort of fits and starts from him in the last, I don't know, two, three years where we're like, oh, everything is going to be fine. And then it kind of plummets. So there is precedent for this being a short-lived return to form, but it has seemed to be a good one so far. And that's pretty encouraging from a guy who notched like just... 
it's not it's almost unbelievable how bad he was last year. And yeah. granted he was hurt and so he missed a ton of time. Like he only played 95 games. I think I'm looking now 350 plate appearances. So he clearly, you know, he was injured and then he appeared to be at times compromised when he even was on the field, but like a 48 WRC plus. I mean, we <laughs> talked in the off season. We I think the conclusion that we reached is that they wouldn't do it, but we we felt the need to entertain the question, is Cody Bellinger a non-tender candidate? Yeah. And, you know, he clearly wasn't, but we had a pretty decent sense of what he was likely to make in arbitration even with the down year. And, you know, this is another place where the Dodgers are the Dodgers and they are able to press an advantage. See, this is the advantage that everyone in baseball should try to press, right? Is the is the money advantage. What fun that would be. We would be <laughs> over the moon if everyone was like, no, I'll just spend more than you did. That sounds great. But like, you know, a lot of teams faced with Cody Bellinger's production and a potential $17 million arbitration deal would just like move on and mm-hmm. do other stuff. And the Dodgers are like, eh, it's just money. So, yeah. so far they are being rewarded for that foresight. Will he continue don't know but uh it's it's pretty nice so far yeah and as for yelly christian yelich uh. of the brewers i don't know what to make of him anymore because on the one hand like he's been dealing with various injuries he had the knee injury and yes. surgery which was pretty serious and seemed to coincide with him no longer being an otherworldly player and just going back to basically being a, a league average hitter more or less and then he had back injuries and you know kind of like a chronic recurring back issue and that's something that concerns me for a a player I mean you go back to like Don Mattingly, there are lots of examples of hitters who have had back issues that have just sapped their power pretty much permanently the thing with Yelich is that he is hitting the ball very hard he is in the 98th percentile in hard hit rate right now. So right. he's hitting the ball even harder than Bellinger is. And he's up there in average exit velocity. He's up there in max exit velocity. He's up there in barrel rate. And he is still pretty selective, too. I mean, he doesn't strike out a whole lot. I, I guess he's he's striking out more, but he doesn't chase much. And, you know, he still walks a lot. So I don't know, like... With him, you would think that if it were injuries, if it were the back, that would manifest itself in him not hitting the ball hard. Right. But instead, he seems to have gone back to his old Marwin self with more strikeouts where he's just hitting the ball on the ground a lot. And so his average launch angle is higher than it was last year, let's say, but he's still hitting more than half of his batted balls on the ground. And it's just hard to be an elite power hitter when you were doing that. And he seemed to have corrected that. I mean, when he peaked and when he was MVP and nearly back-to-back MVP, like it seemed that he had figured out how to hit the ball in the air a bit more often. And that's the part that confuses me, I guess, is that I could see if he just were not hitting the ball hard anymore because of physical ailments. But why would you continue to hit the ball hard and yet sort of unlearn what you've learned when it comes to like not pounding the ball into the ground constantly Yandy Diaz style so I guess that could be injury related too I I mean maybe like the knee or the back or whatever has restricted his mobility in some way that makes it hard for him to get that loft on his swing but it's like I guess it's a sign of optimism that he is still crushing the ball because if he could just redirect it then he'd be all set but that was something he struggled to do for years and years before he finally broke through and put it together for a year or two 
Right. It's like, do we have the, the most confidence in guys' ability to change? Like, which of the things is harder? And I would imagine hitting the ball hard in the first place is a harder mm-hmm. thing to do than starting to hit it at a more optimal angle, particularly when you have hit it at an optimal angle before. So it's not as if there's yeah. no precedent for that being a component of your swing. It is just a very strange it's a very strange thing. Like he's hitting it hard enough that I would imagine that even with the increased drag on the ball, like it should be going, it would go over the <laughs> fence more if it were just up in the air more than it is now. So. Yeah, and you know, his expected weighted on base is 340 right now. His actual weighted on base is 284. But 340 as an expected weighted on base, I mean, that's what it was last year, too. Right. And that yes. is not what it was, you right. know, when he was 2018, 2019, when it was like a, almost 100 points higher than that. So, yes, he has underperformed his batted ball quality thus far, but his batted ball quality thus far is like, you know, a little bit above average, not superstar. Right. Yeah, if I were a baseball player, I mean, I know that all ball players have to contend with this because even the guys who are incredible as they age do eventually see skill decline. Like that just happens. That's part of being a, a, a human being whose body only moves in one, you know, temporal direction, right? Mm-hmm. But I would, uh, I'm just like too anxious of a person to be a pro ball player, I think is what we keep we keep coming to when we have these conversations, but the idea of a, of a skill that you have previously demonstrated an ability to not only execute on, but to execute on to an MVP degree, right? It's not like mm-hmm. he, you know, he did it okay. Like he was an MVP, you know, he was mm-hmm. like, he was Christian Yelich and we were like, wow, cool, Yelly. Yeah. And the idea that it can just leave you potentially i would think about it every day and it would absolutely (laughs) be to my detriment if it were Mm -hmm. me at the plate so don't i hope you don't listen to the podcast christian i guess is what i'm trying (laughs) to say because that feels like an intrusive thought yeah well sometimes players will have a breakthrough mechanically and then they will revert and it's weird because you would think that well if they figured out how to play at that level whether it's throwing a pitch a certain way or developing a new pitch or changing your swing or your setup at the plate or whatever it is like you'd think that you could retain that. Like, it's one thing if you just don't have the physical skill and capacity to do it, but if you do, and it was really just a matter of unlocking it by changing something about how you work physically, then you'd think that you could sustain that. But that's not always the case. I mean, sometimes players really will just peak for a year or two, and it's not necessarily a fluke, but it doesn't mean that they can continue to play at that level forever or even until they really reach an advanced stage of decline physically. I mean, sometimes it's that, yeah, you do have some nagging injury, and maybe that's the case with Yelich that makes it harder to execute in that way. Sometimes it could be that teams start pitching you differently and they find a way to counteract whatever you manage to unlock there or maybe you just get into bad habits for some reason and you just forget how to do what you were doing so well or or a coach changes or something else about where you're playing or how you're playing changes or something's going on in your personal life that we don't even know about so you can't necessarily count on these things continuing but it is confounding when you have someone like that who played at that level for a couple seasons and obviously the Brewers banked on him continuing to play at a very high level because they gave him a long-term contract to do just that so 
you know, I guess there's still some hope as long as he is still crushing the ball, then you kind of can convince yourself, oh, maybe he's just one adjustment away from crushing the ball in the air instead of on the ground. He's done that before. There is some precedent for him making that adjustment. So I guess there's still hope, but it's not something that, you know, he's uh, really provided me with much more faith that he can do in the small sample that we've seen thus far this season. Yeah, it's like when in 2020, Eric Cosmer was just like putting the ball in the air, right? And we were all like, oh, wow, like maybe he finally (laughs) figured it out. And then he was really not very good at all last year. Although I am now for the first time sort of engaging with Eric Cosmer's early 2022 line. And hey, look at you, Eric. Good for you, friend. (laughs) Yeah, We aren't friends. I don't dislike him necessarily. We're just not acquainted, friend. It was Mm -hmm. a weird thing to say. But yeah, it was like he, you sit there and you're like, okay, for 156 plate appearances, you had it sort of figured out that you Mm -hmm. had to like hit the ball even some amount in the air (laughs) right (laughs) not you know it wasn't like he had like a crazy launch angle but like some amount in the air like his average launch angle was like two or something (laughs) Mm -hmm. the year before and then you know it was like 8.7 in 2020 we're like okay like he's gonna figure some stuff out and then he was like no i'd prefer Mm -hmm. not to yeah Eric Cosmer has a 457 BABIP. That seems sustainable. (laughs) I bet that'll go forever. Because, you know, one of the things they say about Eric Cosmer, so fast. This is like famously so fast. Yeah, Yeah. really a burner there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I have actually, it's funny because you mentioned, you know, now at this point in the season, you'll stumble across slash lines every now and then be yeah. like, hey, okay, look yeah, at you. Yeah, when did that happen? <laughs> and that's sort of the same thing when it comes to team performance because I have not looked at the standings to this point. I, I just why would yeah, you? Yeah, I, I briefly glanced at the standings just before we started this episode because I wanted to look at one specific thing. But generally, I just don't look at the standings this yeah. early because, you know, it, not that these games don't count or anything anything but we're so far away from actually having a sense of how the season is shaping up you know but it's late april and i guess we started the season later than usual normally maybe i would start to check in every now and then around this time but you know at some point soon i guess i will start periodically looking at the standings i have not to this point however There are some cases where a team will surprise you in a way that is good or that is bad or that impacts their long-term chances, whether because they got off to a truly awful start where all of their rivals got off to great starts or maybe they lost a bunch of players to injury or something like that. And if you had to pick one team that has gotten off to the most discouraging start, I would say it's probably the White Sox. Yeah. I'm disappointed because I thought this might be the year when we would really get to see the fully operational White Sox in a way that we didn't last year. And granted, they were really good last year and they ran away with that division and their underlying numbers were probably even better than their record. But one thing that we lamented about them was that they were missing a lot of core players for big stretches of that season, whether it was Loy Jimenez or Luis Robert or Yasmani Grandal or others. And so the thought of, hey, what can they do? With all of those guys reasonably healthy this season, that was exciting to me because yeah. uh, a lot of these players are really fun to watch. And 
I wouldn't say that I'm worried about the White Sox exactly, worried about them missing the playoffs or even not winning this division. Like, they're off to a 6-9 and nine start. Yeah. Not great, but what I wanted to look at the standings to see was, well, how far are they off the AL Central lead? One and a half games. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, no one is running away with that division. The Twins are on top with an 8-8 eight and eight record. Yeah. So there is not a winning team in the AL Central. Aren't the, the Centrals? They're just scintillating year after year. <laughs> One of these years, like the Centrals will really be like where it's at in yeah. baseball. Like we'll just be talking nonstop Central, but not so much these days. So no one has really seized a commanding lead or anything in this division. And the Guardians have looked decent and the Twins have looked decent and the Tigers have looked okay. I mean, these are all decent teams at least and maybe yeah. better than that. I still think the White Sox are the class of that division. But because they haven't gotten off to a great start and because they have, again, suffered so many injuries, right? So Loy Jimenez is out again now yeah. with a pretty severe hamstring strain. He just had surgery for that. Lance Lynn also had surgery as well. Garrett Crochet had Tommy John, right? He's done for the year. Yoan yeah. Mankata hasn't played. He has a, an oblique strain. And then there were various other, maybe more minor setbacks. I mean, Joe Kelly has not pitched yet. Giolito missed a couple starts. Uh, Luis Robert strained his groin and missed a series. So you have a, a mix of nagging day-to-day things and more serious things and season-ending things. And it's the same sort of pattern as last season. And it sucks because I just kind of want to see, like, how good can the White Sox be? And there's just not a ton of depth on this roster, which I, I think has been exposed. Yeah. And so, you know, if you look at the Fangraphs playoff odds and you compare to the preseason odds, the White Sox are the biggest loser thus far. They have lost about 23 percentage points. So they are now down to 60% chance to make the playoffs. And if anything, I'd probably take the over on that. Again, I'm not really concerned about the White Sox, but I would say that their ceiling has lowered now. Yeah. Not just because they're off to a 6-9 start. That doesn't mean that much, but because they are going to be shorthanded for a while here. So... Too bad. Just too bad. I kind of wanted to see, could the White Sox vault themselves up into that kind of class of the league, super team type category or not? And I think they will still win this division, but probably not by as much or as impressively as they might have otherwise. Like they're down to 85 wins projected, which again is higher than any other team is projected to win in the AL Central because it's the AL Central. But still, like I, I think they've lopped off some of their like upper limits that they could potentially have achieved. Yeah, and I think that we have had our issues with the expanded playoff fields, but I think one place where you look at the Central and you're like, let's assume that the White Sox win, and you're thinking about which of the division winners is likely to clinch a bye. Like right now, I would I would say that they are a distant third in terms of who I expect to both win and then be in a position to not have to play in the wild card round. So that failure to really solidify either because of stuff that you you know can't fully control for like injuries or stuff that you can like you know signing depth to counter those injuries which inevitably happen because pitchers always break you know there there's real consequence to this stuff you might be looking at an early exit just by virtue of having to play another series or being compromised later into the postseason even if you make it through that wild card round because you've had to play a couple of extra games you know this stuff ends up mattering even if you're able to 
win. I think this has been our criticism of both of the centrals, the central eye, mm-hmm. over the last couple of years, where it's like there are some very good teams that have emerged from there. Obviously, there have been teams that have gone on to play in the World Series that have emerged from those divisions. Some of the times they even win. So mm-hmm. it's not as if there isn't a postseason track record to point to, but it does often feel particularly with the AL Central where it's like, play for, we want you to play for October. It feels like you're you're settling for, you know, a, a division championship and then an early exit. And it's like, why don't you keep playing? You know, you got to keep going. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they're starting Vince Velasquez right now. And it's not a long time since we were just kind of lamenting that the Padres were starting Vince right. Velasquez because they were basically out of options last year. And yet here's Vince Velasquez starting for a team that uh, has aspirations to win this division and go deep into the playoffs and maybe just a stopgap, but not great. I mean, yeah. he had like a, you know, six ERA for the Phillies last year and then like a eight and a half ERA for the Padres. And now he's up near seven through three starts for the White Sox. So I uh, just not sure how much Vince Velasquez has left at this point, particularly as a starting pitcher. I think it's still sort of strange that he has not just been put in the bullpen by someone and let to see what he could do there. But if you're starting Vince Velasquez, like that's uh, not a great sign. And, you know, they've been shorthanded and there just isn't really anyone who is at AAA just waiting in the wings to be called up. They don't have a great farm system and, and for the right reasons. Like they've promoted a lot of good players and they've done the things that you should do to put a winning team together. Yeah. But unless you're like the Rays or the Dodgers, it's hard to have a winning contending team and also have a great farm system at the same time. And the White Sox do not. So if they're going to supplement, I mean, they're also starting Dallas Keuchel, who right. looks pretty cooked himself these oh, days. Boy. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Yeah. And, you know, they have guys who maybe are on innings limits or, you know, who knows how many innings you get out of like Michael Kopech, who's looked good, but hasn't racked up huge innings totals before. So, again, I think that they will be fine ultimately, but it is uh, sort of deflating to me to see them come out of the gate this way because I'd really like to see just the White Sox just strutting their stuff and having everyone on the field. And it looks like it's going to be a while until that's the case again. Yeah, I think that that's right. Also, in the past few days, a lot of discourse about the ball, right, and the level of offense, and we've talked about this once or twice already, and, you know, I haven't written about it, I guess, a bit because I just get Groundhog Day vibes Mm -hmm. (laughs) from the baseball at this point, like, We're talking, you know, six and a half years at this point that the ball has been a a constant question. What is going on with the ball? And early on, I wrote about it all the time because I felt like not as many people were writing about it or were paying attention to it. And people were still sort of throwing up their hands and saying, what is this? What's causing it? And MLB was still maintaining that it wasn't the ball. And it was pretty clear to me that, no, it's the ball. And so I kind of kept hammering home that point in various ways. I haven't written about it this year because, again, it's like I I almost feel like I've said everything I had to say or at least written everything I had to write about the ball. And it's a new wrinkle in the same continuing story. And there are a lot of capable writers out there who are handling these things and documenting it all. So 
Rob Arthur wrote about it for Baseball Prospectus and did his usual analysis of the drag on the ball based on StatCast data and how the flight of the ball and the speed of the ball changes on its way to the plate. And Alan Nathan, physicist par excellence, he wrote about it too. And Eno Saris and Ken Rosenthal teamed up on a piece about it at The Athletic. So plenty of uh, baseball-related coverage out there. And also another reason why I haven't fixated on it myself is that I kind of think like the ball's okay. The ball is not necessarily the problem at this point. It's everything surrounding the ball. And so I, I guess you could say that it's a problem that the ball is not flying as far now because we have the other offensive conditions that we have. But right. I feel like if we could keep the ball the way it is right now, I'd be fine with that. I don't think it's super juiced. I don't think it's super dead. I think maybe this is like the Goldilocks zone for the ball. It's just that all of these other things have happened and strikeouts are up and you have batting average way down. And so offense is historically low and, and that's not great. So it's weird. It's like, do you pin the blame on the ball because the ball is kind of like the proximate cause contributing to this downturn this season? Or do you look at the larger overriding, overarching issues that are causing the ball to be a problem? And that's kind of what I was getting at last week with my stat blast about limiting the number of pitchers on the active roster. Like, they're kind of these other underlying concerns that I think should be addressed and, like, just juicing the ball just to get around those other issues and kind of like paper over those problems long term, I don't think that's a solution. So you could question, well, why did MLB decide to deaden the ball and not make some corresponding changes that could have caused offense to be at a more tolerable level? That I think is fair to wonder, but it's like, I don't know, the ball to me is actually less of a problem now than it was a few seasons ago when we had the highest home run rate ever. And I felt like, you know, you barely had to hit the ball hard to get it over the fence. If we could keep the ball the way it is now and change some other things, I'd be fine with that. But it it does appear that the drag on the ball is higher. MLB said Again, in one of these secret memos distributed to teams that was then later leaked and reported on by Ken and Eno that they are using only one model of ball this season. So if we take them at their word, which is uh, always fraught when it comes to the baseball, then we don't actually have multiple models of baseball in play this season, supposedly. And there have been a lot of players and other team personnel who have said, yeah, it's just not carrying as far. Some of them have maintained that they do think there are multiple models of baseball still in circulation. But whatever the case, the drag is higher. It doesn't seem like it's solely related to the humidor being in all parks. There is maybe some evidence that the decrease in fly ball distance or barrel distance has been even starker in parks that just added the humidor. And that could change as the season goes on and the atmospheric condition changes. It's it's hard to do the analysis because you just don't know the conditions under which the balls were stored previously in many ballparks. And so it's hard to anticipate the effect that the humidor would have. But if you're imagining or thinking that you might be imagining that the ball is not flying as far this season... Well, you're not imagining it, and it's not just the fact that it's April and it's cold. It's even relative to previous April, so something's going on for sure. 
I share your sort of long-term consternation with the other factors that seem to be suppressing offense. But I think that like the league needs to be conscious of the offensive environment that they're operating in. And, you know, I know that there is debate about how much of a hand they're having in any particular model of ball, which remains like a weird defense to this mm-hmm. problem. But I think you have to be cognizant of the fact that your offensive environment is so homer reliant. And so yeah. even a ball that, as you say, is sort of like in potentially in that Goldilocks zone in a more in an ecosystem with greater biodiversity, right? Mm-hmm. That's not where we live right now. Like we mm-hmm. live in this place. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think that there needs to be some sort of you need to grapple with that reality and just except the fact that like for now we need to have an offensive environment that supports some some amount of home runs or we're going to end up in in bad shape and like it's not just the ball you know Ben Clemens wrote for us today about the role that like the bullpens are having on the right. the downtick in offense and so these things all interact with one another and i i guess that like my hope would be that the league starts to look at it as like, you know, as like a very delicate microchip. <laughs> yeah. And all of its little pieces work together. And if you throw one of them off, then you're going to be like Rob Lowe in Parks and Rec and you just can't stop pooping. <laughs> right. It's a you very know, delicate microchip. You know? It is curious that MLB looked at the offensive environment and said, what we should do here is deaden the ball. Like, I get that, hey, there are too many homers being hit was also something that people were saying but if you're not going to make any corresponding changes then you have to know what's going to happen here this was not impossible to anticipate so what i'm saying is i guess that i would hope that the way out of this is not let's juice the ball again (laughs) just because that's always the easiest thing to do i guess as well let's just change the ball a little bit like we don't have to have the approval of anyone we don't apparently even have to tell anyone that we're doing it until after the fact so which remains wild to me how is this not a collective bargaining issue like i just (laughs) i'll never someone smarter than me is gonna have to explain it to me like i am a dumb little baby sorry babies are cool (laughs) but like you know they're babies they don't know stuff yet they haven't been taught things anyway like it's wild that they get to just decide this impacts careers in a way that is like so much more intense and meaningful and widespread than like the sign stealing stuff which i'm not saying to excuse it but it's like how is this operating in the background of something that they just get to be like, mm, here's here's how we're messing with the microchip today. Stop pooping. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. No, I just I, I hope that they look at where things stand and yes. survey the landscape yeah. and say that, well, oops, maybe we shouldn't have dialed down the bounciness of the ball or increased its drag, which, by the way, they didn't even intend supposedly to increase the drag of the ball. So I don't know why the drag <sighs> Is higher. Meredith Wills suggested that it may have been because of the humidor and the fact that the balls were moved from some neutral space to humidors, and and maybe that has some effect on just like puffing up the balls or or causing there to be higher drag initially. But apparently, like, they didn't even test the drag. I mean, that was reported by some sources, at least, that they kind of changed the ball and and didn't necessarily even know what it would do to the drag, which seems pretty irresponsible if that was the case, because we know that the drag has uh, been involved. 
involved heavily in the changes in the ball's behavior over the past several seasons. So whether they anticipated that or or tested that or not, it, it seems like it's not just the bounciness of the ball, the coefficient of restitution of the ball, but also it's drag. And so balls are, are just dying sooner when they are in the air. And so that is uh, potentially a problem. But again, it's like, you know, if you are trying to cook a dish for dinner or something and you screw up and you leave it in the oven too long and you just say, well, I'll just slather it in a bunch of sauce so that you will not be able to taste that maybe right. I burned this thing a little bit. It's like, OK, maybe that'll get you through this one meal. But in the future, like, uh, you know, follow the instructions, right? And to get your cookbook and don't cook the thing too long. So like in the short term, you could just say, well, offense is cratering. Let's juice the ball again. But then you're just going to end up with a very juiced ball and still sort of an imbalanced offensive environment. And so I would hope that there could be other changes and maybe it will be roster restrictions on pitchers. And those are coming at least in some limited way, right? So it was announced on Tuesday that the restriction down to 13 pitchers has now been delayed. So that won't go into effect until May 30th instead of May 2nd. On May 2nd, there will be a 14-pitcher maximum as rosters reduce from 28 players to 26 players. So you can still pretty much just uh, cram those rosters with pitchers with a 14-pitcher limit. I mean, that is barely a limit at all. 13 is maybe a little bit better, but I do think you have to go down even to 12 or, or 11 to really make that meaningful because as Ben pointed out in that post that you noted, like making it so that you can just give relievers a rest between every outing that actually does improve their performance yep. unsurprisingly. So we've got to go back to, you know, not overworking pitchers, but also just not allowing them to go max effort constantly and then take a day or two off in between outings. There is a happy medium, I believe, with the ball, with pitcher usage, with everything. So swinging from one extreme to another, that's not the long-term solution that I'd like to see. Yeah, it's baking. The ball is baking. You're Mm -hmm. baking a microchip. I've mixed my metaphors. It's not like making sauce, right? There's a precision to this, and you can't just course correct later. I mean, like, it might still taste good, but you should should view it like baking. You have to measure. Do it by weight, you know? How do you not test the... (laughs) How are you not, like, drag? You know, that's pretty important. We should test that. Mm -hmm. It just seems... I don't know. It just seems pretty obvious. And it's happened enough times at this point where I'm like, it's still obvious. Isn't it more obvious now? Yeah. I've Uh. heard differing things like the league saying we did test the drag team saying they didn't test the drag you know if they did test it maybe they didn't test it sufficiently or or right. accurately because uh they didn't say that they set out to increase the drag and yet that seems to have been what has happened so anyway i meant to mention aj pollock was another one of the walking wounded white socks although yeah. he is back now i believe yeah. but he had a hamstring strain as well so anyway we talked so much about like their bullpen and and how deep it was right and and they felt comfortable trading away Craig Kimbrell and now I don't want to say that the bullpen is thin but without Kimbrell without Kelly with Kopech starting like that doesn't appear to be as much of an area of strength as it once seemed to be anyway we already talked about the White Sox just uh, left out an injury or two there just wanted to ask what does a game like Angel Hernandez's game on Sunday on (sighs) national TV Sunday night baseball becomes the punching bag for all of baseball's fans who are watching this broadcast 
We are, of course, generally anti-robo-ump. Yeah. But what does this do to your resolve when it comes to that, to have an umpire make a spectacle of himself? And this was not the worst umpired game ever, and I think there is a bit of confirmation bias when it comes to one of the notorious umpires yeah. who, like, granted, maybe they are notorious for a reason. Yeah, they've if earned we know a their reputation. Name. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not entirely unfounded. And yet, I think when we see that it is one of these umpires whose names everyone knows, maybe we read their calls a little less charitably than we would otherwise. But granted, it was bad. It was bad. It was bad. According to the umpire scorecard, he had an 88% overall accuracy and overall consistency. The average is 94%. He missed a lot of calls and missed some impactful calls as well. It's funny, the one that prompted Kyle Schwarber to have a kind of cathartic, I think, for everyone, <laughs> a little rant at, at the plate and meltdown. Big and, and, feelings. Yeah, for Kyle. get ejected. That was good. Like he, he kept it nice and concise, but he certainly got his feelings and thoughts out there. He had his say, and then he walked out. And I think everyone watching that game kind of felt like Kyle Schwarber did in that moment. But yeah. it's interesting because. Often there will be a lot of inaccuracies, but they won't necessarily be skewed toward one team or the other. In this case, according to the ump scorecard, the calls lent themselves to the Brewers to the tune of 0.77 runs. And the Brewers won this game one to nothing. Now, <laughs> you can't necessarily say that that was all Angel Hernandez. And it's not like, you know, you can just add up all of those little right. mini impacts of the missed calls. And, oh, that's how the Brewers scored their one run. No. But when it was this close, I think that makes it even more visible. So when a game like that comes along, that's like exhibit A for everyone who's like robo-umps now. Do you have a response to that or do you just kind of have to hand it to them? Like, yep, okay, <laughs> not a great look for the human umpires uh, game that we know and love. I mean, that can be true and I can still not like robo-umps. Let's show you how. And you tell me if this is just me being stubborn. I mean, I think okay. that what this underscores to me is that there needs to be a better mechanism of accountability within the umpire ranks because mm. while the way that we are seeing his sort of questionable uh, work performance manifest is in something that could be alleviated by the robo-ump, like the bigger problem here is that it just seems like we are not culling the ranks of umpires with sort of the urgency that we maybe need to. And I know yeah. that you know, this has become sort of a, a silly argument on the part of those who are like, well, doesn't this mean the umpire union is too strong? And it's like, no, it just means that you need a process by which to remove them. Like, it doesn't mean that they can't be fired. And it's weird to be like, fire him. Cause I don't know Angel Hernandez. And like, it's a baseball game. So I do feel kind of weird being like, eh, I fire the guy. But, you know, this is like a documented pattern of him just blowing it in really big spots and doing it with enough consistency that I think that it merits at the very least like further training but I think that you know this is the sort of thing that the the league and the umpires union need to get together on because it doesn't benefit anyone like it doesn't work to the benefit of umpires to have guys like Hernandez who are so bad in in such big moments and I think that you're right that there is sort of a confirmation bias there and that our understanding of just how bad he is might be a little bit disproportionate to the actual like gravity of of these calls but you know you don't have to fix this with tech 
you just need to fix it with better umpires. And we mm-hmm. have them. Like, it's not as if every umpire is this way. Mm-hmm. So, no, I don't think it means we need robo-umps. We just need to be able to sort of keep the line moving a little bit when it comes to new and better trained umpires who, many of whom are sitting in the minors sort of waiting for that call up to the big league. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because we want enough leeway that you can have catchers who distinguish themselves via yeah. their skill and a couple of good framers in this game too, right? Sure. I mean, you had Omar Narvaez, who was one of the best framers last season, and you had JT Realmuto, who also was up there. The Brewers and Phillies were two of the top five framing teams in 2021. So I guess we could say, well, how much of this was Angel Hernandez screwing up and how much of it was uh, good framing? I think <laughs> in some cases, and you can look at some of those highlights or lowlights, as the case may be, right. and it was not just framing, <laughs> you know? No, um, it was so, not every umpire mistake is good framing. Not every instance of good framing is an umpire mistake. Well, I guess the latter is is truer to an extent. But, you know, Len Casper pointed out on Twitter that he said it's popular to crush MLB umpires, but in the replay era, bad calls are almost always corrected. Umpiring is objectively better than ever. Even balls and strikes. Go watch old YouTube games now. Half an inch outside the graphic line on a 99 mile per hour sinker. We lose our minds. Just some perspective. And I think he's right that on the whole, umpiring has gotten a whole lot better, not just via replay review, which enables us to overturn some mistakes, but also just the strike zones, the the accuracy and the consistency has measurably improved during the period in which we can measure that. And one would imagine, I mean, you know, you don't have to go back to like the Eric Gregg game or or others to show that clearly umpires are, are better on the whole now that they are graded and they get feedback from the technology and they have that as kind of a corrective. And so we do want some human element. I guess it's just like, you know, everything in moderation, as we're saying with the ball and with offense. Like we want enough leeway for catcher's skill and, and technique to separate them. And yet not so much that like, you know, if the umpire is so bad that they'll just call anything a strike, then it's not even like framing matters anymore. It's almost like you're taking away the impact of framing in the other direction because it's like, well, there's no correlation even between what the catcher is doing and what the umpire is calling. It's just umpire mistakes more so than anything. So yes, when you look at umpires who are consistently bad and like, I know that Angel Hernandez, of course, he has been at the center of a discrimination suit against MLB, right? And it could be true that, there has been discrimination yes. against umpires, and it could also be true yes. that Angel Hernandez is not a very good umpire, yeah. <laughs> at least when it comes to calling balls and strikes, right? Both of those things can absolutely be true simultaneously. He could have been the subject and victim of discrimination and be pretty bad at his job sometimes. Like Those are not mutually exclusive realities to live in. Right. And, you know, you look at the umpire scorecards data, which now goes back to 2015, and there are many ways that you can grade these things. But according to their grades, he's in the 30th percentile for accuracy going back to 2015 and in the 16th percentile for consistency and favor, whether his calls or missed calls tend to favor one team or the other. So not necessarily the worst, but not good, pretty bad, pretty consistently among the worst. And so you would hope that there would be some mechanism to say, well, we will, if not fire you, at least like 
sideline you, not have you in high-profile important games, hopefully manage to improve you and target whatever your weaknesses are here. And that just doesn't seem to be happening to the extent that it should. And, you know, as older umpires just age out of the umpiring pool, that does seem to produce some improvement, not necessarily because of the age of the umpires who are coming in, but just because they have come up in this era where they are getting constant feedback from PitchFX and StatCast, and they seem to have taken that to heart. And they are calling zones that are much closer to the rulebook zones. And I think that is generally a good thing. So... As a defender of this particular form of human element, and not just because of the fact that it's human element and nostalgia and tradition, but because, as we have covered, I just really like watching the human element of catcher's receiving skills and even of some strategy when it comes to maybe figuring out how to get those calls for certain umpires like this went a bit too far and so that makes me cringe because i just know that there is going to be a whole new chorus of uh robo umps now calls and and it's hard to refute when you see something like that in a high profile broadcast that maybe makes the problem look even more pervasive and acute than it is yeah i mean we are not defending this (laughs) no (laughs) like to be very very clear this is this is a this is an, a mistake. We don't want, you know, games like this. I maintain that it would be good for us to have a mechanism within the replay system specifically to address egregious calls one way or the other. And I have been told, Ben, by several people who listened to our discussion about that, that I was right. Uh-huh. So, aha, right. there you yeah. go. <laughs> but that doesn't come close to addressing a problem like this where it is clearly a more pervasive issue, right? So... Something needs to be done, but I don't think that robo-umps are the necessary or even only intervention that we can have uh, in order to do that. So mm-hmm. that's what I have to say about that. Mm-hmm. All right. Last point, and I will deliver this in the form of a stat blast. So as a reminder, the Stat Blast segment is sponsored by our friends at Baseball Reference, who power StatHead, the very powerful tool for looking up all sorts of sports data, not just baseball data, but many sports. And I just used it the other day, and uh, I don't have to come up with some artificial ad read here because uh, I do use it. And we got an email from a listener the other day who wrote in to say, after the Cubs beat the Pirates 21 to nothing, I was thinking about whether or not it's rare for there to be a blow out that's also a shutout what are the most runs that have been scored in a shutout how many other times has one team scored 20 runs or more while not allowing any that was a question from mitchell and i answered it in the form of a link to stathead where that was a, a very easy answer to get with one little search and it turned out that there have been now six games that had 20 or more runs scored by one team as they shut out their opponent and the most was a 22 to nothing victory by cleveland over new york 
in August of 2004. So again, very easy to obtain these answers. And I told Mitchell, go to stathead.com, sign up using the coupon code WILD20, (laughs) and you can get those answers for yourself. So this answer is one that I was prompted to obtain by a tweet from Jeff Passan, who tweeted something about Byron Buxton. And Buxton has just been fantastic, right? And and we talked a week or two ago about the close calls that both Buxton and Mike Trout had with injuries, and they missed a little time, and they have come back, and they've been rip-roaring, and it's been great to have them back. And, and we've seen, demonstrated time after time, what we avoided, the disaster we yeah. avoided there by not having them seriously injured because <laughs> it's just, you know, every day something fun with them. It's Buxton hitting walk-offs and Trout hitting, like, excuse me, half-swing triples. I mean, these guys are just awesome. They're yep. the best. <laughs> they are uh, now, it looks like, third and sixth in Major League War on the Fangraphs leaderboard. So they are creeping up toward the top. And yep. let's oh, hope that they... So- Keep so creeping nice, up. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So it's it. Can we just can we take a moment? I know sure. I don't want to disrupt yeah, your no, stat blast, mm-hmm. but I I want to appreciate what our top five is right now. Yeah. And again, all of our usual caveats apply. It is very early. The differences that exist between these players right now are teeny tiny. They are well within the error bars for war. They are effectively all the same guy. Whatever you want to say. But what a fun top five. You ready? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nolan Arenado. Manny Machado, Wander mm-hmm. Franco, Ty France, mm-hmm. Ty France, and Mike Trout. Yep. Pretty good. Yeah. Pretty good. You left out Buxton because he is not qualified. He's not qualified. He's not but this is, games, a, but yeah, yes. this is, this is the, this is the qualified leaderboard. If I drop yeah. my number mm-hmm. of plate appearances down, then we have Nolan Arenado, Manny Machado, Byron Buxton, Wander mm-hmm. Franco, Ty France, and then Mike Trout. Yep. So Wander Franco. Oh my gosh. He's Wander. So good. Yeah. We're going <laughs> to. So good. <laughs> and, and I'm sorry, we're going to do a further digression here. <laughs> There are all of these exciting young prospects, and some Mm -hmm. of them who were struggling early are starting to find their feet, and it's thrilling, Mm -hmm. and Wander Franco is younger than all of them. Yep. (laughs) Anyway, continue with your stat blast. (laughs) Anyway. Byron Buxton is awesome. He is great. He has hit six home runs. He is, uh, as Luke Hooper pointed out in a post at Fangrass on Tuesday, he's hitting high fastballs now. He's undergone a a very trout-like transformation where it used to be (sighs) that high fastballs were his bugaboo. And now he is crushing those too. So he's... Fantastic. Whenever he's on the field, I mean, he and Trout, you you go back a a few seasons at this point and on a per-game basis. Trout and Buxton have been the best players in baseball, and that is why we want them to play as many games as possible. So Jeff Passan had a tweet that was based on some research by ESPN's Paul Hembikidis, and the tweet said, since 2019, the Minnesota Twins are 124 and 73. That's a 101 win pace with a plus 233 run differential when Byron Buxton plays. In the 203 games he hasn't played, the Twins are 94 and 109. That is a 75 win pace and negative 97 run differential. And it goes on to say in his last 162 games, Buxton has 8.4 war, the definition of impact player. And yes, so not disputing the idea that Byron Buxton is an impact player. Absolutely, he is. However, all fun facts lie to some degree, as we know. And I was curious about how much this fun fact lies, because this fun fact, you know, it kind of implies that not only is Byron Buxton 
an 8.4 war player, but maybe he's like a <laughs> 25 war player or some, something like that, right? Like the twins with Buxton are like a 101 win team and the twins without Buxton are like a 75 win team. Okay. And so that is basically sending the signal that, I don't know, maybe like uh, the stats aren't even completely capturing how great Buxton is. And I'm sure that Jeff would not say that uh, Byron Buxton is a 25-win player. But, you know, why even put the numbers out there, I guess, unless you are sort of suggesting that, right? Yeah. I, I mean, you you are suggesting that the Twins are, like, way, way better with Byron Buxton than without him. And so I got curious about this with and without and how notable is this sort of disparity really and I went to frequent Stat Blast consultant Ryan Nelson, and the way he did this was he looked for three-season spans, and of course it doesn't have to be a three-season span, but that's basically what this Buxton fun fact was, a three-plus season span. And he looked up basically every three-season span, and that's almost 11,000 applicable spans to qualify for the list. A player had to have played for the same team for three consecutive seasons, played at least 10 games in each of those seasons, played at least 150 games over that whole span, and missed at least 75 games over that span. So we're looking for players who actually were consistently on that team as opposed to like, you know, they played for that team one year and then they were gone for the next two years or something. They had to have been with that team all three years and they had to have played in a lot of games but also missed a significant number just so we could do a a meaningful comparison here. And they had to have been present in each of those team seasons. So these are reasonable qualifiers, I think. And so we end up with a split again for Buxton here, you know, from 2019 to 2021. It's actually a 631 winning percentage with Buxton in the lineup for the Twins over that three-season span, 118.69. Without Buxton, 92 and 105. That's a 467 winning percentage. So that is a 164 point winning percentage split. That is actually the 165th largest such split out of almost 11,000. And in fact, Buxton from 2018 to 2020, even bigger split. So, so far, looking like, okay, this is really worth reporting here. This is notable. This is like in the top 2% of all such splits of this kind. So it is actually pretty notable. It's not like routine. This isn't constantly happening that you have splits this big. However, you do not have to be a superstar. You do not have to be Byron Buxton to have a huge split like this. And in fact, the leaders in this category are basically scrubs. (laughs) No offense. So like the guys with the biggest with or without them splits where their teams played way better when they were playing than when they were not over three season spans. The all-time leader is Mike Squires. Mike Squires for the 1982 to 1984 White Sox. With Squires, the White Sox went 242 and 120. That is a 669 winning percentage. Without Squires, the White Sox in those years went 18 and 106. (laughs) 18 and 106. That is a 145 winning percentage. So that's a split of 523 points of winning percentage with or without Mike Squires. Now, how good was Mike Squires over that period? (laughs) Over that three-season span, he had a 66 OPS plus and amassed negative 1.6 baseball reference war. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> so somehow, Mike Squires was a sub-replacement level player, and yet the White Sox were like unbeatable with him and could not win a game basically without him. These were like the real-life Ghani Joneses, right? The, <laughs> yes. The mythical player from episode 722 or whatever it was, the replacement level player who somehow causes his team to win and no one knows how exactly. That is Mike Squires. And you look at the top of the list and it is actually largely not great players it's like you know gene stevens for the 1956 to 1958 red sox jerry martin for the 1976 to 1978 phillies gary renicky for the 79 to 81 orioles rafael belliard for the 91 to 93 braves like not superstars here some some decent players but not superstars and i don't know what to make of this like i thought it was actually kind of curious that the top of the list seems to be so populated by not very good players and i was trying to come up with some kind of like confounding factor Yeah. yeah like is there some bias here that i'm not accounting for that would explain why there would be this kind of skew like you know maybe you disproportionately bench your crappy players against good teams or or something but i don't know i can't come up with anything that would explain 18 and 106 without mike squires i mean i think that it's just a largely random i mean ryan's theory was that it's pretty much random and they're just generally more mediocre players than there are good players and and so you would probably tend to end up with more mediocre players at the top of this list. So I'll put the full results and, and data set online here and and you can look up, you know, for recent years. I, I mean, while Byron Buxton was uh, working his magic here for the Twins, supposedly, like maybe the, the closest streak to his, at least among players who were not traded midseason, was like, Jamer Candelario for the Tigers like the Tigers were way 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 better with Jamer Candelario from 2019 to 2021 than they were without him and you know he was decent for them he was quite good for them in 2020 and 2021 but on the whole during that span he had a 107 OPS plus and six war so like I guess the fun fact is lying to some extent it's not a complete lie in that this is actually notable, this with and without Buxton streak. Yeah. It's it's not like the greatest such streak, but it is worth pointing out. And yet it is not necessarily a testament to the fact that Byron Buxton is magic and that the stats are, you know, great as they are, not completely capturing his impact on the twins. Sure. I think these sorts of with and without you fluctuations are largely random, and uh, you would expect the Twins to be significantly better (laughs) with Buxton than without because he's awesome, but not that much better, obviously, and you don't have to be Buxton to have that kind of split, and sometimes you could be Mike Squires at a certain point. like You must just look at him as like your good luck charm or something and just like, (laughs) even if it's irrational, there must be some part of you that's like... Hey, I noticed that when Mike Squires doesn't play, we always lose. (laughs) Maybe there's something that the box scores are not capturing about Hal Jeffcoat here. But no, I think it's just largely random. And, you know, like if you look at Trout, for instance, who has been just as good as Buxton, if not better, over that span, 
you know, the Angels, I, I think, were maybe a little bit better with Trout than without, but notably, yeah. not so much that Jeff Passan would tweet about it. And obviously, Buxton is no better than Trout when they are both healthy and, and at their full power. So that's why the Angels have not been a good team <laughs> with right. Mike Trout, because it's baseball. And having one great superstar or being without one superstar isn't enough to make your fortunes or sink your fortunes. So if you're a Twins fan, you want Byron Buxton to be playing obviously but uh it's not necessarily the difference between winning 100 and winning 75 if you were a front office analyst and you were confronted with that would you just assume like we are witnessing like the limitations of our ability to measure in real time like would that be the way that you would look at it that there must be something of like the stats just can't figure out but there's something there you know yeah, I mean, it would make me think, I guess. It, it was uh, episode 720 was, was Gani Jones, and ultimately yes. I think we landed on, like, basically, you know, he would be burned at the stake or something. Like, yeah. you know, people would just decide that he was some sort of witch and he had some hidden power that not even he knew. And I think with that it was like, you know, his team would make the playoffs or win the World Series even though he was not contributing a lot. If I noticed this over a span of, say, several seasons, I, I guess it would be worth – doing some kind of inquiry and just being like, hey, are we missing something about this guy potentially? But I don't think so. I think think it's (laughs) possible to just just happen. And it's one of those weird fluky things. Yeah, sometimes stuff is fluky, but you would spend, I mean, some people would be like, yeah, it's fluky. And they probably lead more balanced lives than we do because we'd be like, I will not sleep until I figure out this fluke. Right. Gotta find the meaning behind the fluke because it would just make, it would make you feel crazy. Yeah, because you don't know it's a fluke until you look into it because uh, in the past, like maybe before we had good defensive stats or we measured framing or quantified framing, we we might have looked and seen like, hey, this uh, crappy catcher, it seems like the team wins a lot more with this guy who has, you know, no war or whatever. And it's like, oh, well, actually, we were just not measuring something that he was doing. We weren't (laughs) accounting for an incredibly valuable skill because we didn't know how to measure it. Right. Now, I don't know what that would be in Mike Squires' case. (laughs) So, and if you're wondering who the anti-Squires was, it's John Cangelosi for the 1988 to 1990 Pirates. During those years, the Pirates went 74 and 170 with Cangelosi. That's a 303 winning percentage, 180 and 62 without Cangelosi. That's a 744 winning percentage. So that's a gap of 441 points in the other direction. Not that Cantalosi was good, but he wasn't that bad either. And maybe this would drive home the randomness of it all. Ryan pointed this out to me. From 1913 to 15, with Eddie Murphy in the game, Eddie Murphy, the right fielder, that is, the Athletics went 207 and 147. That's a 95-win pace over a 162-game season. And without him, they went 30 and 81. That's a 44-win pace. So that's the 13th biggest drop-off of all time. But then, from 1917 to 1919, the White Sox went 64 and 115 with him in the lineup. That's a 51-win pace but 180 and 61 without him. That's a 121 win pace. So that's the eighth biggest gap in the other direction of all time. So Eddie Murphy can't win with him if you're the White Sox, can't win without him if you're the A's. And maybe that's the best illustration of how unpredictable all of this is. Just one of those weird things. So thanks to uh, Jeff's tweet for prompting that investigation. Thanks to Ryan for the research. You can find him on Twitter at rsnelson23. And we will just 
hope that Buxton and Trout and everyone else just stays in the lineup, whether they have magical powers or not. They yeah. they do have some magical powers in that they can hit like giant walk-off homers and, and triples without even hitting the ball hard. So that's pretty magical, <laughs> even yeah. if it's the kind of magic we can measure. It's just really nice to be able to look at the folks who we enjoy watching play baseball and be like, hey, I get to watch you play baseball again tomorrow. What a nice thing. Agreed. All right. Thanks, as always, for listening. By the way, if anyone was wondering about the run differential split in that weird Pirates-Cubs series where the Cubs lost these four-game series to Pittsburgh but had a plus-17 run differential, that was the largest run differential in a four-game series loss in MLB history. And for the Pirates, it was the worst run differential in a four-game series win. There is one series that's slightly longer that had an even bigger disparity in run differential in favor of the team that lost the series. The Cardinals went 3-2 and two against the Phillies in a five-game series in 1929 in which they had a negative 19 run differential. And all of those facts come from Jeremy Frank at MLB Random Stats on Twitter, where if you want to find something that you think might be good stat blast material, but don't want to wait for our next episode or don't want to duplicate an answer, follow Jeremy on Twitter because he basically is a stat blast factory himself. On our last episode, I did a meet a major leaguer segment about Ghost K. Kato of the Blue Jays, and I noted that he had tweeted something about how he eats two bananas a day because a monkey never cramps, and I couldn't place the reference as we were recording, but a number of you wrote in to remind me that this came from a clip of former Blue Jay Muninori Kawasaki, who said this in 2014. Just a cramp? Yeah, just crap. So you told me what, what, what can you eat to help you make you feel better? Bananas. Yeah, why, why bananas? Monkeys never craps. Uh, you know, monkey never crap. <laughs> Be, uh, because a monkey every day bananas. Two. So how many did you have today? Three. How about three? Oh yeah. So you no more no more cramp for you. I need three banana because a uh, monkey never craps. All right, and while I'm clarifying things from last week, I want to leave you with one exchange I had with listener and Patreon supporter Michael, who responded to my stat blast the other day about the fact that the number of pitches in the average game has increased over the decades. So it's not just that the time between pitches has gotten longer, it's also the number of pitches getting bigger, which has contributed to longer games. And so I suggested that maybe a pitch clock might not be a panacea, because even if you reduce the time between pitches, you might still have more pitches per game than you used to. Well, Michael wrote in to say, I'm generally a fan of your logic, but I'm very confused with your logic in saying that because pitches are up 12% and game times are up 15% means that pitch clocks won't work. But just because the recent games have increased in time is there more pitches doesn't mean you have to fix that by reducing pitches. In fact, it makes a pitch clock more powerful, since an n-second reduction in pitch time would have a bigger effect overall on game time, and if the number of pitches hadn't gone up, the power of a pitch clock would have been lower. Overall, if game times are up 15%, and that's accompanied by an increase in pitch number of 12%, then a decrease in time per pitch of around 18% would more than compensate for all of the increase in time. So Michael makes a a good point here. To be clear, I am not anti-pitch clock, and I do think a pitch clock would help. I'm in favor of it. There has been almost a 0.6 correlation between the number of pitches thrown per nine innings and the time of a nine inning game since 1988, but I'm still pro pitch clock. As I wrote back to Michael, I do think a pitch clock would help, but I think the degree to which it would help depends on whether the current time between pitches is actually long enough and the pitch clock is strict enough for the limit to make a major difference. 
you, that is Michael, make a good point that the more pitches there are, the more potential time savings a pitch clock would provide, but that presumes a significant time savings per pitch. And what the data on pitch counts and game time suggests to me is that maybe the time per pitch hasn't gone up quite as much as we think. If it had, then I think we would have seen an even greater increase in game time given the increase in the average number of pitches thrown. That is, the percentage change in game time would be much larger than the percentage change in pitch totals, instead of only a little larger. And to bolster that case, even with the 22nd pitch clock in place last year in the minors, game times were the longest ever. So the takeaway, I guess, is that you need a more aggressive pitch clock. And the one that seems to be working in the minors this season is a 14-second clock. I do think that one would work well in the majors. I'm just a little skeptical that the league will be able to skip straight from no pitch clock to a 14-second pitch clock at the major league level in 2023 without a lot of blowback from the players. So if there's an intermediate stage where, say, MLB first implements a 20-second pitch clock just to get everyone used to it, I think that might not shorten game times as much as people expect because there'd still be so many more pitches thrown than there used to be. And Michael wrote back and said, I agree with all of that. My point, which I suspect we actually agree on, was just that the observation that game times have increased because there are more pitches and not because pitches take longer is not an argument that pitch clocks won't work. I get that your point was that the fact the pitch times haven't really gone up means the pitch clocks are not a trivial solution to the problem, but I'd argue that the increasing number of pitches makes it especially important that the average time per pitch be the main focus of time of game reform efforts, since it's much harder to imagine legislating or tweaking the rules to bring down pitch number than it is to legislate a shorter interval between pitches. And I agree. We came to a nice agreement after a nice productive discussion here. The point of the stat blast to me was just to kind of complicate the prevailing belief that games have gotten longer largely or solely because the time between pitches has gotten longer. And that if we could just revert to the time between pitches we had in 1988 via pitch clock, perhaps games would last as long as they did in 1988. Whereas actually, there are just so many more pitches thrown now that if the time between pitches were the same now as it was then, the games would still last longer. However, I agree. Pitch clock is still the most workable corrective. It just might have to be a more aggressive pitch clock than was originally rolled out in the minors, which might explain why MLB went with the even stricter pitch clock this season. And again, that seems to be having the intended effect. You can have the intended effect of supporting this podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free aside from our Stathead sponsorship, and get themselves access to some perks. A. Quint, Tony, Shrikant, Dylan Wood, and Mark Goble. Thanks to all of you. Our Patreon supporters, of course, get access to monthly bonus pods with me and Meg, one of which will be coming up soon, plus to playoff live streams later in the year, and year-round access to the Effectively Wild Discord group, Discordly Wild. You can all write us via email at podcast at fangraphs.com. Patreon supporters can message us through the Patreon site. You can all also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod. There's an Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance, and we will be back with another episode a little later this week. Talk to you then. But the truth is hard to take When your livelihood's at stake Better cover your mistakes And the buck doesn't stop you no more 
buck doesn't stop him no more. 